You're listening to TIP. Hi there. My guest today is Jim Grant, who founded an investment publication called Grant's Interest Rate Observer back in 1983. Jim has been the editor for nearly 40 years now. A subscription costs more than $1,400 a year, so it's not exactly cheap, but it's widely regarded as required reading for the world's most successful investors. In fact, when Institutional Investor magazine wrote a long profile of Jim a couple of years ago, it described him as a Wall Street cult hero. One reason for Jim's cult status is that he's a superb economic historian, and he draws on this deep knowledge of the past to shed light on what's likely to happen in the future. He's made a lot of famously prescient calls over the years. For example, at the height of the dot-com bubble back in 1999, he declared that it was one of the most perilous junctures in investment history and warned that America was dangling by a thread, financially speaking. A year later, the bubble burst, the Nasdaq index collapsed and plunged almost 77%. Then, in the years before the global financial crisis struck in 2007, Jim was one of the very first people to warn about the toxic mortgage securities that ultimately led to the meltdown of the global economy. More recently, Jim's been warning for several years that the Federal Reserve has been engaging in a reckless monetary experiment that was very likely to trigger rampant inflation. Unfortunately, it turns out that he was right once again. Inflation recently hit its highest levels in more than four decades. As you'll hear, Jim's disdain for the Federal Reserve runs deep. He recently described the Fed as the most dangerous financial institution on the face of the earth. In this conversation, we talk about the treacherous situation that investors now face, with a worrying combination of runaway inflation, slow economic growth, and historically high asset prices. Jim explains how hard it will be for the Fed to get inflation under control without wrecking the economy. He also explains why he's bearish about bonds, why he likes gold, and why he dislikes Bitcoin, and also why he adamantly refuses to invest in China. He also talks about some great investors like Seth Klarman, Paul Tudor Jones, Bill Miller, and a legend named Bernard Baruch. For me, this conversation was an absolute delight. Jim is one of those rare people who's not only incredibly knowledgeable and articulate and thought-provoking, but also extremely funny. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Thanks so much for joining us. You're listening to The Richer, Wiser, Happier podcast, where your host, William Green, interviews the world's greatest investors and explores how to win in markets and life. Hi, everyone. I'm utterly delighted to be here with today's guest, Jim Grant. Jim, it's lovely to see you. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, it is lovely to be here, William. Uh, thank you. I, I wanted to start by asking you about your early years. You had a, a somewhat unusual early life. As, as I understand it, you came from a very musical family, and it, it looked like you were, you were poised to become a, a French horn star and were, yes. uh, were going off to college in Ithaca. Right. And then something changed rather dramatically. Can you talk about those early years, if possible? Yes, my father was a, a Juilliard-trained uh, uh, tiffinist. He played the kettle drums in the Pittsburgh Symphony, my mother played this, and then uh, uh, World War II came along and he came back from it. And uh, he and my mother presented the world, my brother and me. And my father at length turned to uh, business to make a living. 
And uh, I, for my part, uh, became enchanted with the horn. You know, Dennis Prane was the, uh, the great uh, reigning virtuoso. He was a Brit. And I resolved to become Dennis Spring. And uh, also the first baseman for Brooklyn Dodgers, and, and Gary Farmer, and a naval officer. And succeeded at uh, actually uh, none of those things. The highest <laughs> rating I attained in the Navy was Gunner's Mate Third Class. Uh, but I, I uh, uh, devoted uh, many hours a day to practicing, well, two or three and was quite serious. And for the French horn players listening, William, I uh, attempted... <laughs> there are so many of them, Jim. That's one of our biggest <laughs> I, demographics, I, I think. Uh, I attempted uh, the Strauss second concerto, not the first, mind you, but the second, and uh, rather uh, I butchered it. And uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, So I, I, was, uh, I, was, I was actually quite good. I was not quite good enough, I think, to have been a really top flight professional. And it was either for that reason or others that, uh, well, I, I joined the Navy uh, uh, when I was, the day after I was 17. It was the Naval Reserve. I was still in high school. This committed me to two years active duty and four years reserve duty. And uh, so I, I wanted something evidently at the age of 17 that had nothing to do with the horn or even with women. And that something was, I guess, adventure and patriotism. I was saying, I, I admired my father in World War II. So he was a naval officer and served aboard uh, attack transports. I wanted some of that life as well. And it did indeed uh, live it for a time. So I, I, I went to college for one whole semester before I chose to go on active duty. This was in 1965 and served for a couple of years as gunners made aboard the USS Hornet, which was an aircraft carrier. And this is during the Vietnam War, right? So you right, were, correct. am I right in thinking that you were off the coast of Vietnam? Uh, in, for a time, yeah. Yep, what, that's where we were. I, I mean, I know you wrote to me yesterday sort of saying something something along the lines of um, my, my personal story lacks the heroic element. <laughs> but but as I was saying to you, when I was 19 or 18, I, I was a at boarding school kind of throwing darts at a friend of mine and um, you know pouring milk on this carpet that was said to be waterproof to see if i could make a swimming pool <laughs> you know so i wasn't doing anything very heroic at all so i wanted to get a sense of what you were what you were um well we, what we you were, were doing we were, uh, our ship was uh, uh, an anti-submarine carrier which we specialized in uh, in helicopters and in fixed wing aircraft that would pursue and sink soviet subs so the enemy was not actually the Soviet Union, although at, a, at one remove it certainly was. But uh, the Vietnamese Navy, uh, happily for us, was uh, undeveloped. So we mostly steamed off the coast. The air crews were certainly in, in, uh, in great danger. Uh, we were not. So we, you know, our, our, the, the, uh, we would uh, refuel our destroyer escorts. We would... Uh, hand off ammunition to them. They would go and bombard the coast. But we, it was a mostly uh, uh, quite routine, as I say. I never got shot at, nor did we fire a shot. Uh, once we encountered a Soviet freighter off the coast of Haiphong, and uh, we uh, gave him the middle finger. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a kind of an offensive gesture. <laughs> Uh, we saw uh, Vietnamese fishing boats, which uh, had the biggest radios. <laughs> nice people, but uh, big radios. So it was, 
Yeah, it was definitely a war. But I, as I said, we were, uh, I guess I was to the Vietnam War as the residents of Scarsdale were to the New York City urban crisis, uh, near it, <laughs> but not in it. <laughs> <laughs> and and th- three, three of your comrades, if I remember right, oh, as gunners yes, mates, went, yes. went back for something like four years on, on swift yeah. boats to get shot at, well, and yeah, you didn't, right? You decided I, I did not, you had I did enough. Not. I, I wanted to go to college, but um, uh, gunners mates, Von Essen and Wicks and Simpson, three wonderful characters, uh, re-enlisted uh, for four years uh, for the privilege, mind the privilege of uh, serving on swift boats and indeed getting shot at and shooting and uh, full of admiration for them. Yeah, so, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 I lost touch with open years as one does, and I, I attempted to get back in touch with them on the occasion of uh, an exhibit that the uh, uh, New York Historical Society was putting on uh, about the Vietnam War. And wouldn't you know it, Two of the, I, I, I couldn't come up with Wix's uh, forwarding address, but two of the three friends I had had just died prior to this thing. It's kind of sad. Uh, yeah. One of them, one of them, uh, Dale E. Simpson, Gunner's Mate Third Class, was a was in fact a storybook character. Who's, you know, he he was uh, forever getting into trouble, in, but in the way you want a fighting man to get into trouble. He was absent without leave. He was uh, overstayed liberty in the Philippines, and uh, and uh, got a, and uh, came aboard late, and uh, was definitely hung over, and and, uh, and watched with uh, saddest countenance as the ship pulled away from the pier, and he watched his law unclaimed laundry <laughs> <laughs> recede into the distance. <laughs> anyway, so they they went to Vietnam, and I did not. And I remember you saying he spent something like two weeks in 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 uh, uh, you know in the equivalent of solitary confinement. Oh, he, being punished he was. By the yeah, Marines. one time, one time he was he was uh, he really as they say missed movement, which was a, a, a used to be a capital offense in wartime, but no longer. So we he, what happened? So he was flown aboard the ship. It's kind of a cool thing. He landed in a plane aboard the carrier, and got a. A kind of a uh, not a hero's welcome by everyone, kind of a villain's welcome from the authorities, and it was given what was called captain's mast, mast, which is a, a form of judicial inquiry, and sentenced to like uh, two or three weeks or a month in the brig. And uh, he was the best and toughest uh, toughest prisoner the Marines ever had. So he was our John McCain. <laughs> That's great. So, he was our John McCain. Yeah. So, Jim, how how did that period of early service in your life actually e- either shape you in terms of your, your values and your character or just reflect your values and character, which seem to have been adopted to some degree from uh, your father, who yeah. you obviously respected? Well, I think both. It's certainly, uh, um, so I, I got out after two years and uh, I, you know, I, I, I worked a little between uh, that discharge and my return to college. But when I did return to college, the the, the privilege of, of study, the unimagined gift of, uh, of study and solitude, <laughs> even on a, even on, a, on an aircraft carrier, you can never be alone, really. So these uh, the privileges and the gifts of uh, return to college. I think it, it uh, allowed me to. Uh, have the kind of college experience that middle-aged people could have if they could do it all over again. Hmm. I returned uh, a couple of years older than uh, my classmates at Indiana University, and uh, and I could see that, that they didn't uh, cherish what they were doing the same way I did. 
Yeah, I think I blew my college experience because I, I was I was young for my year anyway because I was born in August and I, I was done with Oxford by the time I was 20, which was just uh-huh. about the time when I was mature enough to start appreciating that I was there. And you must have had like an Edward Gibbon experience, right? Uh, uh, unsupervised and... Uh, yeah, and I'd been at boarding school where you had total supervision and no freedom at all. Yeah. And then suddenly I was, thr- and, and brilliant teaching, and then suddenly yeah. I was at Oxford and, and had the freedom to wake up at 11. And so I think I went to something like one lecture in three years, <laughs> although I did read an enormous amount. So it was, I mean, I, I really read a tremendous amount. Yeah. So it was good in that sense. But I, yeah, that's interesting. So you're, you had this kind of intensity and seriousness by the time you were studying economics at Indiana yeah. University. And, and then I think you, you started international relations at Columbia, but somewhere along the line there, if I'm right in thinking, you, 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 you got a summer job on Wall Street, didn't you? And I'm, I'm curious to know what oh, yes, that early I, I, experience taught you. Very uh, formative thing. I, I, I got a job on Wall Street and I was, I got out of the Navy in uh, early February and I got a job soon thereafter at a firm called McDonnell and Company yeah. on Wall Street. And I earned, instead of $75 a month, I earned $75 a week. Fabulous. However, I was the, uh, by far the lowliest uh, employee in this room of, of what we call institutional sales when people were stockbrokers for banks and insurance companies. But they all earned $100,000 a year, which was, which was not such a small sum today, uh, but a quite magnificent one in 1967. So I could almost smell the money. I decided I liked it. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I liked uh, the markets. And uh, uh, so I, I, uh, by that time, I had, uh, I had uh, resolved to return to college. I went to Indiana, which was a mecca of, uh, of uh, kind of a, uh, a state uh, conservatory. It was a very good school, especially for horn players. Oh, I, I, <clears throat> as I drove back from the West Coast to the East Coast upon my discharge from Navy at Long Beach, California, I stopped by Indiana and I announced to one of the virtuoso, one of the virtuosi, was t- I said, uh, I have been accepted as a horn player. And he said, oh, really? I never have been. <laughs> and that was such a deflating little, and I, I think that's what put me off music. Anyway, I came back and, and, and chose uh, economics on the strength of my uh, six or seven or eight months, whatever it was, at uh, McDonald's company. And do you think there was some sense in which you saw either either th- from your summer job or your, your six to eight months on Wall Street and from your experience studying at Indiana University that there was a there was a big difference between your image of what was actually going on in the trenches on Wall Street and the reality, which presumably was pretty unsalubrious at the time and not not that intellectually rigorous. What, what, what did you discover? What did you see that kind of informed your skepticism and cynicism about Wall Street that, that marks a lot of your journalism? Well, the, the, the skepticism and cynicism about Wall Street was uh, attained that gradually and by degree. I was quite open-eyed at, uh, in Indiana. And uh, what I mostly imbibed in my economic study in Indiana was uh, was the uh, history of economic thought, which then was a very serious subspecialty in economics. It's no longer taught. Uh, everything happened 15 minutes ago, as far as the economists today are concerned, which is in part how I make my living, is by recalling episodes that uh, people have put out of mind. There's a professor named Scott Gordon who taught a history, history of economic thought, which I just loved. 
And there are others as well who uh, introduced me to uh, some of these ideas. So did you come out of that experience with a, a, abiding principles from, say, the, the Austrian economists um, that, that kind of not, defined... Not, not then. Not then. I, I, that uh, came rather later. Uh, but uh, I came out with a fairly good grounding in uh, the, uh, uh, the principal thinkers uh, of economic uh, theory. And, um, you know, the, the, uh, the course was, now that I look back on it, was rather heavy on uh, Keynesianism and, and monetarism. Milton Friedman was one of the demigods. Certainly Keynes was in the forefront. And I've, I've come to see the uh, clay feet of, of both economists and, uh, and both set of acolytes. But the uh, convictions that I have since adopted concerning free markets and the Austrian, so-called Austrian approach, we can talk about what that actually is. That came a little bit later. So, so then you got a, a job. I think your first real job in journalism was at the Baltimore Sun on the financial yes, desk. And, yes. And then went to... No, the, the first, the first, the first was, uh, was, uh, it was covering uh, police and fires and writing obituaries. That ah. was the, yeah. That was the, uh, but then you got job. demoted to cover the, f- the financial world? Or, right. Or, well, it was the least, the, by far the least prestigious uh, post in the paper. There was a certain amount of, a, of kind of, a, of a fake uh, daring do um, about uh, covering uh, crime. Although, you know, there's, uh, you've heard, I'm sure your listeners have heard about uh, a show called The Wire. Yeah, Famous, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. I, uh, I was uh, at high school with Don West who played McNulty. He was, he was a close friend of mine oh, back really? in those days. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, anyway, I um, was uh, uh, a reporter who uh, supposedly knew something about crime. I had no idea any of this was going on. I, I must have seemed to the criminals of the city of Baltimore the most pure, innocent. I, I was, Were you um, walking so, along the mean streets wearing your bow tie, Jim, back in those days? I was thinking, what a peaceful city. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I, so I watched this, uh, this series with your friend with a, you know, a sense of, uh, as every fan watched with an immense admiration for the series, but also in my case with a certain amount of humiliation that <laughs> all of it was such a surprise. I, well, I should not have been quite so surprised as a police reporter. So anyway, so uh, uh, an opening came up in the finance department and uh, I was the Warren Buffett of the newsroom, having spent eight full months at one stretch and then not to mention summer vacations working on Wall Street. And then, so I, and then you went to Barron's, right? From something like 75 yes, right. to 83 yeah. and, and you, you originated the current yield column. And I, I wanted to ask you about that period because it must have been an incredibly formative period because for, for those of us who, um, I, I, I was born in 1968, so I wasn't really aware of what was going on at the time. But th- this great inflation that ran from yeah. 1965 to 1981 was forming the backdrop of your career in those days as a financial writer. And I, I wondered if you could describe for us, for those of us who didn't experience it firsthand, what you saw and how it shaped your views about the importance of yeah. sound money, fiscal discipline and the like, because it, it must have been kind of a, a rude awakening to see, I, I think, didn't, didn't inflation hit something like 15% in 1980? I mean, it was a terrifying time. Yes, although it became rather, uh, one became rather acclimated to it, I think never wholly adapted to it. But um, my goodness, uh, the inflation rate had uh, been tripping up since 1965. And the authorities then, as today, said, first of all, not us. Nope, we didn't do it. And then <laughs> this will pass. 
<laughs> and then, you know, and actually before very many years had gone by, William McChesney Martin, who was then the Fed chairman, and a great rhetorical foe of inflation to give these speeches uh, condemning it and vowing to slay it like a beast. <laughs> uh, but uh, towards the end of 1967, in uh, close confines of the uh, meeting of the Federal Open Market Committee, he said, uh, the horse of inflation is out of the barn. So he was uh, not ready to give up. I said, most we can do is to make sure this uh, steed does not gallop way too far too fast. Uh, so uh, then ensued year upon year of uh, deteriorating purchasing power of, of the dollar, of uh, rising interest rates, of uh, contracting uh, what we call valuations for stocks, meaning the price you pay in relation to what the company can earn. It's a valuation. And we express this as a ratio of stock price to profits, we call it a price earnings ratio. And uh, during the good times, the, the stock prices go up and people are willing to pay a higher and higher price for a given dollar of profit. And when inflation hits and when interest rates go up, the opposite happens and people pull back and they're willing to pay less and less per dollar of profit. And that was the story of this great inflation there are, of course, ebbs and peaks and undulations. And one of the things that uh, happened then that I think is very great relevance today is people were all too ready to declare an end to things when inflation receded. Now, nothing says that today is going to repeat the experience of yesteryear. In fact, rather, the odds are against that, just simply because history is never so, uh, it's never so helpful as to repeat itself literally, otherwise imagine how rich the historians would be. <laughs> you know, they, they say, and they, what they say is true, that uh, one's first experience in markets and with money is, is deeply formative and, and prints itself on you. And, and the best investors, the nimblest and the, and the most successful are ones who can put that formative experience aside, or at least put it in the perspective and not imagine that they must repeat the experiences of their youth and their middle years. And uh, perhaps that experience was too deeply imprinted on me, or allowed it to be too deeply imprinted. But I have, uh, I guess, have seen inflation under rather too many bedposts, and under too many mattresses over the years have gone by. But, but you were right in the end. And so yes. we'll, we'll come back to that at great yes. length later. Let in the, us not in forget the, to come back. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we will return. This will be the, the heart of our conversation. But, to, uh, but you, you then left Barron's. I think there was some sort of squabble at the, at the top. Oh, it was. You know, the, uh, the smaller the financial stakes, the more intense the <laughs> domestic politics. You can see it in the college English departments. And uh, my mentor at Barron's was a wonderful guy named Robert M. Blyberg. Robert M. Blyberg was a... Uh, uh, was a, uh, uh, an infantryman during World War II, served and was wounded at Okinawa, served in the Philippines in Okinawa. And uh, you know, you, people who had experience were forever pissed off <laughs> at some level. You know. and, uh, and Robert M. Bliver combined a patrician, a patrician's modulated speaking voice with a wonderful, rich vocabulary of sanities. And he would come, storm into the office and say, uh, in his mildest, and say, uh, tell them, meaning the corporate uh, chieftains, to get us the things we need, penny-wise, pound-foolish bastards. <laughs> so he get away with cliches and away with obscenity. 
And it was wonderful to listen to him. He enunciated. He's like a stage actor. <laughs> uh, so he was, but he, he was uh, a dyed-in-the-wool uh, free markets guy. Who had no use for the state, no use for the Fed. He was properly and deeply cynical about the undertakings of the central banking world. And I certainly absorbed much of that from him. I also is the fellow who wears bow ties and he doesn't have to. I went to the public library in the weekends and I read bound volumes of The Economist featuring the works of Walter Badgett, the famed Victorian author of Lombard Street, book we can talk about if we decide that's relevant, and, uh, and also wonderful leading, artic- leading articles, as you would say, in The Economist. And I would actually count his words to get a sense of his, I could tell, I could tell his style, his style was marvelous. He was a, he, he invariably had the money market comment in The Economist. And he, he wrote under, of course, the regime of the gold standard. He wrote in the 1860s, 1870s. And it wasn't exactly through him entirely, nor through Blyberg entirely, nor through my readings entirely. I think this must have been a, a character, you know, trait or flaw. or whatever. I have a, a lifelong abiding fascination with gold and the gold standard. I admire his simplicity, his elegance, his efficacy. And uh, so all this, uh, this, uh, all these ideas and these, uh, and these uh, what do we call them today, influencers <laughs> uh, combined to lead me in the somewhat eccentric financial direction I have taken. I say somewhat eccentric, I should say very eccentric. So before, before, before we dispatch with Badgett, who I'm, I'm likely to forget if we don't talk about him right now briefly, Badgett, you ended up writing a, a biography of, uh, which I have on my back table here, but I'm embarrassed to say I haven't read yet because I was oh, reading all your, the time in the world. There, there <laughs> is. I, I was reading your Bernard Baruch book, which we'll talk about later, which is a wonderful book. But if there's one enduring lesson from Badgett that stuck with you from studying this guy who you regard as the, the greatest Victorian, is there something is there something that's of relevance to our audience that we can um, yes. We can get the 30-word yeah. version of Badgett's life uh, from you. It is that uh, interest rates, uh, a topic that does not enchant everyone, are critically important, and that when you suppress them or otherwise manipulate them, you uh, uh, generate adverse consequences. They call it staying, uh, reaching for yield, some of hygienic frames. It doesn't do it justice. What it means is scrounging around in the worst of the... Uh, leftover remains of the investment markets for things that will turn you something on your capital and taking inordinate risk to do so. So Badger taught this lesson. He said, uh, John Bull, alluding to the national symbol of Britain, uh, John Bull can stand anything, said Badger. He can't stand 2%, meaning that if you impose an interest rate as low as 2%, 2%, my goodness, has seemed at times in recent years rather um, uh, rather lofty. But if you impose as little as 2%, people will uh, send their money abroad, they'll send it to Argentina, and they'll lose it. They'll send it to, uh, I don't know, they'll send it to, uh, uh, to Cuba, and they'll lose it. You know, so they'll, they'll, they'll take risks. So that, that's, that's one abiding lesson. So that, that's, that a, that's hugely relevant, as we'll come yes, to later, to the last 12 years, this experiment since uh, uh, the 2008-2009 oh, yeah, crisis. You know, one gets a sense, of not just in reading Badgett, but in, in reading financial history, that, uh, uh, that yes, human beings change, certainly technology changes, but the interaction of people with money is enduring. 
and and rather stable. I, I you know I, people talk about the efficient market hypothesis. I think people are just as efficient around large sums of money as they are around attractive people of the relevant sex. I was about to say opposite sex. Yeah, so. that was a nice a nice save, Jim. Nice. I I appreciate your dexterity. So you then you will come back to some of these these lessons from the the, the the past that inform this current period. But you then you then quit Barons, and and as I understand it, you went and founded what what I would call Grants Interest Rate Observer. But I'm aware that it has to be oh, Grants Grant, Interest. Grant, I'm so I'm so sorry, and I mispronounced your name as well at the start. So so Grants. Um, so so you you quit I think with something like seventy five thousand dollars from your profit sharing plan at, at Dow Jones, right. and and you had two kids on the way and started this business in nineteen. 19- 83, with something like 35 people subscribing to your first issue. What were you thinking? I was thinking bankruptcy. (laughs) (laughs) Patricia, my wife and I uh, uh, were uh, first movers in the automated spreadsheet called Lotus 123 that my technophilia ended about 1983, the year it began. (laughs) And we were capable of generating the most plausibly bullish projections by putting in uh, what turned out to be the most uh, uh, impossible assumptions. You know, we assume, I don't know, uh, my readership at Barron's was uh, oh, like 150,000. So I figured if only half of them subscribed, <laughs> half subscribed, half. <laughs> uh, that we would have major tax problems before the year. Yeah. So we did not have any, we had no tax problems, but we did have a <laughs> revenue problem. <laughs> <laughs> and the revenue problem persists. I, I don't think I took a salary until like 1987 or something. So it was, so the world had enough to read, as it turned out, even then had enough to read. And uh, Patricia, uh, in addition to, she had four kids uh, by the time I took a salary. Uh, but um, uh, she was working at the Lehman Brothers, which so long ago was that the Lehman Brothers was still solid. Yeah. And it paid her a good salary as an investment banker. So uh, she supported all of us uh, as uh, grants came into its own or began to come into its own. And then once it came into its own, she, she became a neurologist, right? Which is an extraordinary transformation. She did. She went to medical school. We had to, got, we had to, was there only four, it seemed like 40 kids, but she did it. And uh, she, she uh, got her, she graduated from the Albert Einstein School of Medicine at the age of 49 wow. plus. Wow. The second oldest in her class, she would have us know, not the oldest. I was very excited to have dinner with you and Patricia, your wife, uh, a couple of months uh, ago. Yeah, and I, I, I was, I was ha- happy to meet you. And then I left thinking, God, she's formidable. She, yeah, I, should, I should have a different podcast, the podcast. Yeah, where I interview <laughs> Patricia. She's a remarkable person. So, uh, but, but, but so one of the things that struck me is the, the name of your publication. And, and you, you once wrote, it wasn't false modesty that led me to choose the word observer for the banner of my 12-page journal, rather than say soothsayer or prophet. The truth is that I can't forecast interest rates, and neither can many other people, yet the temptation to forecast is ever-present. And so, can you talk a bit about that idea of, of setting up a publication, grants, interest rate, observer, that would observe rather than predict? Because this strikes me as kind of one of, one of the essential quandaries that we're all facing yes. as investors, that, that we, have to, we have to position ourselves for the future, and yet the future is somehow, as you often put it, unfathomable. Well, it's a closed book, isn't it? And, uh, and one can pretend, and at intervals over the course of the uh, 
almost 39 years now. I've been doing this with considerable help, by the way. But uh, over the course of these nearly 39 years, I have sometimes given in to uh, bouts of, uh, of, uh, of delusion uh, that, you know, so strong can one's conviction become about a certain stock or bond or market that one uh, yields to uh, an unbecoming and certainly mostly unprofitable dogmatism. But just as you say, William, markets are about the future, and if you can't know the future, you must contribute something to the difficult but necessary job of imagining it, right? You can dogmatize about it. You can, you can conceive a view of it based upon uh, the alignment of forces in the present, uh, about the way people themselves are expecting the future to unfold. If everyone thinks one thought, you have an edge because you can investigate the alternative. As often as not, the, the idea that's most popular is least remunerative. Not always, but often. So it's like a, you can walk into a doctor's office and the doctor will say, well, uh, no, the test does not look very good. And uh, oh, that's disturbing. Well, what, what do we do about that? He said, well, you know, we really can't tell very much. We can, we can kind of handicap the odds a little bit. No, thanks. But that's, that's, the, that's kind of Wall Street, too, right? We can't know the future, but we can't handicap the odds based upon uh, some knowledge of the past. Again, not a dogmatic rendering or overlay of the past or the future. I use this word dogmatized a lot because I hear people, especially the uh, ones who are not 75 and a half, say things as if they knew them. When, um, uh, you know, they, I, I, I see myself in a lot of this. I hear people say, here's the way it's going to happen. And sometimes they're right, which only makes it worse. <laughs> but uh, again, you, you, you can't cop out and say, well, you know, we'll know more next year. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? 
Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network and the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. Yeah, I thought it was striking. I, I was looking at some of your greatest hits over the years, and, and, and obviously you made some really big prescient calls that helped to make you and, and, and grants uh, an important force <laughs> in the world. Um, so, I mean, I think I'm right in saying you, you were incredibly prescient in predicting the implosion of the whole junk bond bonanza fueled by Michael Milken and Drexel. Um, you were incredibly prescient before the global financial crisis um, in sort of seeing what was wrong with the housing market uh, and actually got praised in the movie The Big Short as the, uh, uh, the, the guy. That, sweet? Uh, yeah, that, that, that was, was kind of lovely. Yeah. And, and likewise, incredibly prescient in being an early critic of companies like Valiant and WeWork that blew up after lots of very smart people thought that they were wonderful. And yet, on the other hand, I, I can also see there are these, these things where, you know, you've been criticized for telling people to sell stocks in the 90s during the bull market way before the tech bubble burst, or you were warning about the bond bull market ending in 2016, way before it ended. And I, I, I wonder if you could just talk about the moral of that, of, of the, I mean, is, is the moral, the general futility of market timing is it, is it important? Because it, it seems like you were directionally correct with all of these things, but, the, but the, actually timing them in a way that makes it actionable is excruciatingly difficult. All of that is true. And I, I, I don't want to say that, uh, I don't want to speak for others uh, by asserting uh, that uh, no one can do that. There are people who have made a fabulous living on Wall Street by not getting everything correct, by being... Um, uh, have, by having such a tactile sense about the ebbs and flows of cycles and about the, uh, uh, the interior of the market's mind, to kind of reading the psychology of the marketplace. And uh, you, know, they, uh, you know, great traders, uh, John uh, uh, Paul Tudor Jones, Stan Druckenmiller, to name only two, have this capacity. And that, um, so, I, so, so there are those who do that. And I think, but, I, but, um, uh, what I have discovered about myself, and it's not a recent discovery, but I've come to understand the depth of, of um, how I operate. And I think I do my best with disaster. With, with a, I'm, I'm a critic, and I, I'm not a child of 1929. My father was. My father watched his father go broke. His father had no business doing anything in the stock market. His father was a a high school educated uh, autodidact who uh, uh, became the dean of music at Penn State College, as it was then known. And uh, but he, he went on margin in nineteen. I'm sure he got exactly the top in margin on margin in 1929 and lost you know everything. And my father had nothing to do with stocks. Everything reminds him of 1929. Now I didn't imbibe that directly, but I I have I think inherited. Um, a sense of uh, deep appreciation of the downside. Um, not so much fear of it, um, 
but uh, I, I, um, I kind of relish the idea of, uh, of catching on to it, of seeing it, and then warning others. It's a sweet line of work if you can do it right. And it was sweet uh, to have been validated in 2007 and 8 and 9 uh, with the help, certainly, of people like Dan Gertner, who uh, uh, kind of decoded the horrifically complex mortgage derivatives that we were able to uh, explain to people. Uh, but yeah, we also we got we asserted in 1996 or something that the stocks were overvalued. My God, they had not begun to to paraphrase the Federal Reserve today. They had not begun to think about becoming overvalued in 1996. Um, the elapsed time between having declared stocks overvalued in 1996 and the top in 2000 that was about 50 years of psychological time in, uh, in coming to terms with all that. So I, I've, uh, I've uh, one is confronted with the, uh, the old medical school gag that Patricia related to me that uh, everything you learn here, no, of all the things you learn here, half is going to be wrong. What we don't know is which half, right? Everything you think about markets, no, half of what you think is going to be wrong. We don't know which half, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, so I want to confess to this, uh, this tendency, this trait, this weakness, but I also don't want to convey that we have given up uh, trying to do something about helping people understand the unfathomable future. That's what we do for a living, uh, sometimes more successfully than others. I, I, I spent part of the last few days reading back issues from the last year or so of, of Grant's Interest Rate Observer, and uh, it's still so painful for me to say this. And, <laughs> and, you, you, uh, could, you could elapse into the native Grant's, tongue. Grant's Interest Rate Observer. Yeah, that sounds much and, better. And I was thinking, God, I wish I had read this earlier, that it would have made me, uh, I mean, I, I, like you, I'm sort of a, a pessimistic journalist who always assumes that everything's going to go to hell, so I didn't take crazy risk. But, but I think it would have sharpened reading your analyses would have really sharpened my sense that something historic has been going on in the last 12 years since the financial crisis. Yeah. That's this kind of wild experiment that nobody, nobody knew or could know what it would lead to and that the conditions were increasingly fragile. And I, I wondered if you could talk about that, about, uh, you know, because now the, the thing that you were warning about for years has come to pass and we're suddenly seeing this surge in inflation and all the fragility you were warning about has become exposed and revealed. Can you, can you put in context for ignorant laymen like myself, what was actually going on during those t dozen or so years since the global financial crisis in terms of this kind of reckless monetary uh, experiment that you were warning would lead inevitably to this kind of crisis that we're now seeing. Yes, inevitably is, is not so very helpful a train of thought introduced into an investment periodical. I think Keynes says something to the effect that uh, if you say something is going to happen in our lifetime, say, you know, thanks. <laughs> but we don't like Keynes. All right. So um, two things have happened. One, you can quantify, and the other is rather uh, inchoate, but still, should call for that, still important. The, thing, the quantifiable thing is that the, in the wake of the, uh, the Great Recession, the central banks of the world, led by the American Federal Reserve, uh, decided to, uh, to stimulate, yes, they use that verb, stimulate business activity uh, through suppressing interest rates, thereby tending to raise up 
the prices of stocks, bonds, and real estate. And Ben Bernanke himself, in a Washington Post op-ed, I think 2010, announced this was the intention of the Federal Reserve's low interest rate policy. He was going to buy bonds with the expectation others would follow suit. People would pay more for a dollar of those corporate earnings. Stock prices would rise. And the rate that profits were capitalized would rise. And people would come into capital gains. They'd feel richer and be richer and, and thereby spend more. So we used to call this trickle-down, but now it took a rather fancier name. Uh, this was the, uh, uh, the portfolio balanced channel theory of investment. Christ's sake, what are you saying? You're saying, you're saying we're going to lead some other nose into the stock market, which they did. So, uh, so that happened in a quantifiable way. So the inchoate part had to do with the, uh, with the mind of the market and the expectations of the market and what came to be uh, what came to be uh, absorbed, uh, what people came to believe, is the Fed would be there for them. That the Fed wanted things to go up, that the Fed would, uh, would make us rich, and that if, if perchance, if by accident, if through some uh, cyclical hiccup, the market pulled back, the Fed would make it go back up again. Okay, so this takes us to say, let's think it's 2020, we'll fast forward 2020. And uh, comes uh, the, the pandemic, uh, comes the falling off of the cliff in March. And what does the Fed do? The Fed, never mind the kitchen sink, the, the furnace, the plumbing, the furniture, everything in that house got tossed at the problem. So to go into the, the active voice and the passive voice, the Fed uh, took charge of uh, of making sure that this uh, pandemic did not lead to a depression. And, uh, and what followed this was one of the most astonishing light shows in the history of central banking. By the time the 2021 came to a close, the broadly defined money supply was showing growth year over year in excess of 20%, never before seen in such a short period. Interest rates collapsed. Uh, the speculative fervor that all of this created was lifting. You know, stocks, bonds, real everything, cryptos, NFTs, everything that wasn't nailed down. Nothing was nailed down. It's a massive levitation of everything bubbled, some of us called it. And uh, what also occurred was an undesired inflation on Main Street itself. But the cash register, the checkout counter. So the Fed never minded inflation at the corner of Broad and Wall Streets, New York Stock Exchange. That was, that was desirable because that made people spend and, and encouraged investment to outlays and the like. But the Fed is in business to prevent and, uh, and to uh, ameliorate, if it does occur, inflation at Main Street, right? I mean, that uh, wrecks wages, that, uh, that wrecks budgets, that, uh, uh, that uh, distorts the values, that... Uh, that gets uh, elected officials defeated at the polls. That's that kind of inflation they don't like. But we got that too. So now here we are with inflation uh, rampant. It's not an exaggeration. Uh, stock price is still elevated by historical lights. Uh, bond interest, interest rates, bond yields, are still very low by historical record. So what does the Fed do? Well, it's rather than a quandary. And that's where we stand today.
So I remember you warning on your Grant's Current Yield podcast, which is terrific, which I really encourage people to, to listen to. Well, that's now. high praise. Uh, no, it's really good. And I'll, I'll, include, I'll include a link to it in the show notes here. You, you said at one point, the Federal Reserve is the most dangerous financial institution on the face of the earth. And then you, des- you described them as the handsiest people in finance, which I liked. So you were saying how they're, they're always meddling and having to improve and intervene and interject. Before we get to the current problem, is, is there just this illusion that it's helpful to intervene and interject? Like, why, where's the philosophical difference that you have and that someone like Jerome Powell, the Fed chief, has in terms of believing yeah. that it's worth, worth meddling or actually dangerous to meddle? Well, um, I think that the Fed believes, um, I know the Fed believes because they do this stuff, the Fed believes that um, they can select a rate of interest, a policy rate of interest, uh, that will at once um, encourage maximum employment, uh, minimize the rate of inflation, and keep the financial markets percolating. And I say, many of us say, that that rate is known not to God, but to individuals operating in a free and untrammeled market and discovering that word is price discovery, the phrase is price discovery, discovering a rate of interest. And what makes the discovered rate of interest better than the artificial or the imposed one is that the discovered rate of interest is the product of decisions taken by uh, people who have no idea what their, what the, their counterparties are doing, but they're all trying to maximize their own welfare in the world. They all go to work in the morning, uh, wanting to do better. They make decisions. So, so the the conflation of these myriad decisions is going to give us a better outcome than the somewhat arbitrary and necessarily ill-informed pronouncements of the former college economics professors who populate the halls of the Federal Reserve. We call it, we call this at grass. We call the current standard, we call it PhD standard, existing from the gold standard or other standards of yesterday. And, uh, you know, ages ago, in 1930s, I guess, not so ages ago, but a, a while ago, there was uh, an economist named, I think, Henry Simons, University of Chicago, who said that uh, uh, business enterprise ought not to be a speculation on the future of monetary policy. That's kind of what it's become. You know, everyone has to know what the Fed is doing. The Fed has become ubiquitous. Uh, of course, it's handsy as some politicians we know. It has become like the referee in a football game or a soccer game or <laughs> yeah. cricket or baseball. I'm yeah, trying to a, help proper, a proper game, cricket. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when you get to know the name of the umpire or the referee, you know that umpire or referee is not doing a job. That doing his or her job, right? Like, that person is supposed to be invisible. The game is a thing, right? And not the rules. When the rules are paramount and the arbitrary decisions of the referees are paramount, that is not a game. It is a, uh, I don't know, it was a kabuki theater, whatever it is. It's not the game we came to play. And I think that we're not playing the game of enterprise as we ought because the Fed is too much with us. So, so now we've explained to some degree the causes, the backdrop that led to this mess. Let, let, let's talk in some detail about what can or should be done to fix it. So yesterday, uh, this podcast will be coming out in a couple of weeks, but, but yesterday the Labor Department announced that inflation has been rising at a rate of 9.1%. Cost of food was up, I think, 12% in the last 12 months. Electricity up nearly 14%. 
gasoline up about 60%. So first of all, I mean, I mean the most obvious question, it, it sounds so mundane, but I actually kind of like to ask it. Why is inflation so fearsome? Why is this thing that we've kind of forgotten, this, this looming Loch Ness monster beneath the surface of the financial yeah. waters, so terrifying? Why, why suddenly is everyone sitting up and saying, oh, God, there's a real problem here? Well, Nessie, I think, uh, might not exist. I don't know for sure. <laughs> but uh, uh, inflation was consigned to the status of Nessie uh, by a generation of economists who, like preceding generations of economists in the 1960s, believed that they had found the Philosopher's Stone. And they, through their dexterous uh, manipulation of this and that lever of policy, uh, could forestall and uh, ameliorate, as I said, in case of Okay, so that was the conceit. But um, I think, um, to go back to a sporting metaphor, I think that muscle memory played a great part in conditioning everyone to expect everything except inflation. Now, if you simply ask the following question, the answer is going to be, yeah, inflation. And the, and the question is this, what will happen when the government pays people not to work, when indeed it subsidizes the lack of production through various uh, rules and regulations, when it, when it materializes money as it has never materialized those dollar bills before, and as it borrows and spends in the space 18 months as it has never been before, what is likely to be the outcome? And the schoolboy of your would say, yeah, inflation. Notice that no one said, of course, inflation. There's a, uh, uh, a baseball story, having a guy say, um, 1968, Bob Gibson was the reigning pitcher in baseball, an imperious, majestic, uh, and dominating and domineering figure was Bob Gibson, St. Louis Cardinals. And uh, he played with a, an infield named Ducky Schofield. Ducky was very good in the field, not much of a batsman. <laughs> batsman, that's a great term. Yeah. And one day, Ducky strikes out, storms back to the bench, and curses up a blue streak, smashes the water cooler, and uh, Gibson can't stand him. He summons Ducky to the end of the bench and points to his batting average, which was 226. And he says, Ducky, what did you expect? So similarly today with inflation, you know, what did they expect? Well, what they did not expect was the obvious. We may have to piece it together by all of us. But the fact that it was not obvious speaks to muscle memory. It speaks to the conceit of the economic forecasting fraternity. And it speaks uh, simply to, I guess, to, uh, to the foibles of human perception. This is a, I mean, this is a really important point just to, just to underline before we move on, because it, it, it really gets at this question of just having to be a little bit humble about our ah, own ability okay, to self I, I want to digress. So uh, years ago, there was uh, uh, a bunch of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of, of medical scientists got together to examine uh, something. A cadaver discovered in the melting ice in the Italian Alps. And this thing is called the Ice Man, right? So the, the greatest uh, uh, heart specialists and, uh, and, uh, and physiologists, I mean, the anatomists, people with a scientific interest in the human form came to the relevant hospital in Italy to examine this ice man, right? And they spent weeks going over it with the advanced tools then available to them. 
x-rays and things that I can't know. And it wasn't until the very end that someone said, yeah, there's the arrowhead right there. <laughs> and, and the relevance of this is that, the, and, and the, the ones who missed it were so embarrassed and so humbled. And we wrote a piece about this, and the headline was Perils of Perception. And our story wound up that if the, sci the scientists who missed this were not, they, they didn't have financial, they weren't leveraged in the market betting on some outcome, right? They didn't have an options position open. They had no financial interest in the outcome. They were studying this and disinterested academically if they missed it. So we wound up saying, well, so how is it that with people through force of financial interest, client interest, how any of us solve it? Given, given all of the impediments to clear perception in finance. So that, that's why things periodically get so messed up. The, you know, the, everyone, everyone has a different set of perceptions, but, the, but the, the, the population of people who are paid to have a disinterested perception, it's a very small population. And, you, and of course, they are human, right? Yeah. So even even the fact that you're trying to be aware of your own bias, your own yes. proclivity yeah. to be gloomy and to see yeah. problems, uh, and to protect people from problems that um, possibly prematurely. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. That that seems to me a a, a a really profoundly important lesson for any investor just to just to be aware of the fact that if if people are if people as smart as all of these PhDs working at the Fed can be as wrong about the unfathomable yeah. future and as overconfident about their, uh, their own brilliance, it should give us pause, especially for someone like me who doesn't have any of that training, to start to think, well, on what possible basis do I think I can predict the future of you know, the economy? But, but there, there's, there's an extreme in this direction as well, and the extreme is something called the efficient markets hypothesis, which is a thing. Uh, it is held widely in academia. And what it holds is that... Um, prices at any given moment in stocks, bonds, whatever, are just where they should be because information is instantly absorbed and processed through uh, the human brain and through algorithms and uh, bots and the like. So don't try to outguess the market. Just take price. So, so no, because that fails to recognize the, the capacity of humans for, for crowd behavior and for a mass hypnosis under the spell of the Federal Reserve. So it's a lot more interesting than the efficient markets hypothesis, right? So that's what lends the, uh, the steel and the poetry into this line of work. Yeah, you, is, you like me. You, mu you must know, but you can't know. Yeah, and I, I think <laughs> both... <If> you follow. <laughs> and, and both of us, I think, come much more from the school of Ben Graham of saying, yeah, far from this being efficient, it, Mr. Market is crazy and once in a while gets so carried away that that's what creates tremendous opportunities for really smart, dispassionate investors. Yeah. But, you know, I, I've, uh, I've just, I wrote uh, a revised the, uh, the preface for the next edition of Security Analysis. Seth Klarman and I are involved in this project and others. And I was, uh, I, I was reminded while doing this of how little the precepts, the, uh, the, the, the wonderful, true and uh, and uh, logically consistent precepts of Ben Graham, how little they yielded to an investor over the past dozen years. Because Benjamin Graham is all about a margin of safety. But when markets are levitating, as they did in the late 90s, for example, or in Japan from the 80s, 
into the uh, into 1990. A margin of safety is the last thing you need. If you want to keep up with the Joneses, you have to throw all that aside. Um, so it's not a very comfortable theory for yes, but guys. Yeah, I think it. I think it. It depends how seriously you take the question of survival. Right. Um, yes, exactly. So, right, right, and and also how long is your investment horizon? You know, if you're starting after 22 years old, got your first job, you can actually afford to uh, uh, to pay no attention to uh, the cyclical fluctuations because you're all the time in the world for things to recover and for compound interest to work. It's magic. You know, that, that's fine. But if you are even a little bit older, it pays to uh, oh oh okay. So I can help your if I can help with one thing at least on this lovely podcast. And that <laughs> is a, a book suggestion, and the author is Fred Schwed Jr. S H W E G. Schwen, and the book is Where Are the Customers' Yachts? It came out in 1940, and um, uh, Fred Schwed uh, says at one point, he's, he's, the heading in his chapter is a little wonderful advice. And he says, um, here's how you can have the pleasure of dying rich. He says, what you want to do is uh, when everyone is selling stocks, you buy. Now, you won't get the bottom, and they'll go lower. Pay no attention. And then wait, and uh, they go up a lot. And um, when they go up enough, to sell. They'll go up more, but again, pay no attention. And repeat, and you have the pleasure of dying rich. And the charming story, and there's a lot of very helpful human truths in this book, but that is about the least possible thing to do for the average human being, because we're all carried away by gloom at the bottom and by euphoria at the top. Just where, you know, we're just perversely wired this is the devil himself wired us for finance yeah absolutely well i i shared some comment of yours on twitter the other day which i know i, I could rip off from you because i know that you're not on twitter very much where you talked <laughs> about i'll get this wrong but it was something about how at the top of the market we're all convinced that two plus two equals five and at the bottom we're all convinced that two plus two equals three and this just seems like a really recurring yeah, trait. That's about, at three, at, at most. <laughs> at most, that's right. That's right. You're, you're, remembering, you're remembering your quote better than I did. So to get back to the current issue that we're facing, yes. the, this um, burst of inflation, what are the Fed's options for actually dealing with inflation? And, and you've talked about the risks of accidental outcomes that it faces. Yeah. So can you talk about the high risk of a financial accident that could be created by the Fed, which, as you've pointed out, is not entirely uh, omnipotent and omniscient. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, one of the, uh, the great uh, Austrian thinkers of yesteryear, Ludwig von Mises, sounds like he'll be conducting the Vienna Philharmonic. But von Mises was a great economist and more, and he said the trouble with what the Fed does to rid us of inflation. So first of all, it, uh, it overdoes it, thereby causes inflation. So it's like a driver who runs over you with a car. And then to fix the problem, the driver backs up <laughs> and runs over you in reverse. So what the Fed does is, uh, in the uh, language of uh, economics is uh, to pursue a course of demand destruction, proverbially and trivially inflation. It's too much money chasing too few goods, too much demand in relation to supply. So demand destruction is the thing, right? So you want people to spend less, to want less, or to want it, but they have to give them less money to do it. How do you do that? Well, you wreck the economy. So you uh, raise the rate of interest. And uh, so the question before the House is whether the Fed artfully can raise its rate just enough 
to uh, destroy just a little bit of demand at the margin, but not so much as to sink us as a society into a slump. Now, I think the way to imagine this is to uh, put ourselves in mind of the, the old college freshman fraternal initiation trick, and that is yanking a tablecloth out from under a set table of china, glassware, and porcelain. Now, um, if you go on WikiHow to investigate how to do this, they will, WikiHow will advise, always try it with plastic cutlery and cups. <laughs> but notice the Fed has not got that, uh, um, that, that, uh, that uh, option because the table is set proverbially and uh, metaphorically. It's set with uh, the most brittle glassware and the most precious porcelain and uh, bull market champagne fruits because of the 12 years of suppressed interest rates, which have fostered risk-taking, which have brought forth into the world all these companies, because some of them are called unicorns because they come to market worth a billion dollars and generate not much earnings. So the world is full of uneconomic economic projects fostered through financial stimulus. It's principally low interest rates, right? So what happens when you raise the rate of interest on companies that need to borrow just to stay alive? Well, they can't stay alive. So they're cascading failures and companies that supply those uneconomic things. So think of the, uh, the craft beer makers that sold beer to WeWork in the day, right? So there's a whole chain of economic activity that goes to support uneconomic activity. So that is the that's the metaphor for the yanking the tablecloth. It's not plastic cutlery, not plastic cups on the table. This is glassware. And the glassware has made all the more brittle through the Fed's earlier stimulus. So we're sort of flying blind here. Is, yes. Is, yes. Your, is your bet that the U.S. economy can escape a recession or is your bet that it's going to get pretty ugly? Well, I mean, I well, know here, that... But, well, here we come face to face with personality and character and vested interest, right? So what would be better for grants than calling another disaster? I could imagine the motion pictures. I could imagine a parade is probably true. Well, I could imagine uh, our circulation going up a lot. The big so short I, part two. Right. Uh, so, so here's what, so without obsessing on uh, interior dialogue and motivation, what I try to do is to reserve mind share, mind space for the not impossibility, not impossible outcome that things work out. Um, the United States economy is something that has uh, demonstrated the greatest resiliency over the years. I mean, I, I think one hears rather too much about American, uh, Americans, not singularity, but exceptionalism. Right? So America is exceptional in many ways. Certainly its economic uh, history is exceptional. So, so uh, there's a can-do spirit here. There's a spirit of enterprise that not even the Fed can uh, extinguish through its maladroit policy maneuvers or President Biden extinguish through his elections in the pulpit. So, yeah, it's possible that, uh, uh, that uh, through luck and maybe, uh, maybe the Fed's learned something. But I, th I think that, so the question then becomes, where do the risks lie and where do the opportunities lie? Given that the outcome is indeterminate, are you being paid well to think one thing that is 
possible, indeed probable, is are there bargains, in other words? Are there bargains that people are neglecting because they more of a so single-mindedly focused on some? And I, I don't see many just yet. We have a very good uh, uh, equity ana- analyst here who does other things well, but his name is Evan Lorenz. He's the deputy editor of France, and he does fabulous work in analyzing individual stocks. So we had been very bearish on Facebook. But uh, in the current issue came out, and Evans uh, did this fine work, and he says that Facebook is now a buy. It's cheap on its, on its merits, on its earning power. It has been unduly punished for its foibles and its, uh, its managerial errors. And uh, now we ought we are to pay attention because it is now a value-laden stock. It's a margin of safety. So, so, there, so there are these opportunities cropping up. The risk is, and we, I see this a lot in uh, people who manage uh, what's called value portfolios, is that uh, the, the cheap stocks do go down with the ones that are too expensive. I know of value investors who have suffered losses this year on the order of 20% or more, although they thought the stocks they owned were so cheap that they were inured to such things. But no, so it's been a brutal year for many people. But in answer to your question, what we try to do is keep scouting for opportunities. We don't see it in the bond market. Although if there's a recession, bonds will go up in price and down, and interest rates will fall likely. We see opportunity in gold stocks, which are almost universally ignored and scorned. They're about as cheap as they've ever been in relation to the metal. But if the Fed is seen not to have the great answer, if the Fed is seen to be an institution you must protect yourself against rather than to trust in, in that case, this is, a, this is something I've been expecting for as long as I've been alive almost. In that case, gold's going to be very well. Let, let's unpack some of this in a bit more detail so that we can give our listeners a bit uh, a, a kind of practical sense of what most likely they should avoid and where they should kind of look for opportunity. So you, you've talked a lot about historic bear market cycles for bonds and, and the impact that interest rates have in, in terms of these really long cycles. And, and as I understand it, the, the moral of, of reading what you've been writing about this recently is we, we just had basically a 40-year bull market driven by ultra-low interest rates that are now reversing. And I'm trying to get a sense of whether what you're saying is we're done, just stay away from bonds, basically. That, that For example, I remember Jack Bogle once telling me, you know, you should. You could just make a one, a single decision of having a balanced fund that had, you know, 70 percent stocks, eighty percent stocks, or whatever, depending on your age, and then 20, 30, 40 percent bonds. And there are people now saying, well, actually, the sixty forty portfolio is done. You're toast with that. Can you talk about what this knowledge of the history of these huge bond market cycles tells us about what, whether whether we should just avoid bonds totally now? Yeah, a bond is a promise to pay money. And uh, uh, the best thing that happens to you with a bond is you get your money back with interest. That's the upside. And uh, Ben Graham, writing about bonds, uh, reminded us, reminded his readers, that uh, a bond is not going to triple because management's chance on us a wonderful invention. Uh, as the upside is limited, uh, so other risks uh, great. You know what? Uh, so bond selection is one of exclusion rather than of selection. You, you pr- approach it with the idea of avoiding risk. So what about uh, you know, treasury securities? They're characterized as super safe in the Wall Street Journal. They uh, have anchored uh, most retirement portfolios for most of the past four decades. 
well, um, how do we analyze this? Uh, one way of looking at it is to observe that over the course of uh, 150 years of financial history, uh, bonds have tended, tended to move over the course of decade-long cycles. Interest rates would rise for 30, 40 years, and fall for 20, 30, 40 years, and so on, starting from the late 19th century to the present. They have fallen for 40 years since 1981. Now, it might be that that cycle has broken. I have been uh, a little too eager to declare the end of that cycle. And uh, in my newly found humility on that point, I will not now say, at least not out loud, I might think it, <laughs> that uh, the bond market still might revert to uh, going down motions time. Uh, but if indeed the cycle has ended and rates are going to go up, we are in a different investment world because uh, bonds will not provide the hedge that they have against falling stock prices. Just recollect that uh, for everyone's investment memory, really, when stocks got into a rough patch, you had some protection from falling interest rates and rising bond prices. But if bond prices are falling and interest rates are rising, you are forever not getting a hedge, but rather a drag. And um, so the 60-40 or the 70-30 portfolio is not the thing for you. Now, this is still speculative, but I think that it's likely to be the case. And people ought to be alert to the uh, idea that, uh, uh, that um, uh, something new is in the offing. And uh, what that something might be is kind of in the womb of time, but we can guess a little bit about it. Uh, uh, it might be that, uh, I don't know, it, it, it might be that stocks are going to become more important uh, after they reach a point at which they become truly cheap. It might be that cash, for all the damage that inflation does to cash, but cash is going to be the thing rather than longer dated bonds. So one would have a 60, 40, or a 70, 30 portfolio, but the, the 30 or the 40% portion would be in a near cash thing, maybe a one-year treasury bill, for example, or a short-dated municipal bond fund, rather than 20 or 30-year securities that yield you more. You sacrifice some yield uh, for the protection against capital loss that is part and parcel of the longer data security. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3500. 539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. 
Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one and actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. Up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business. And they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right. Back to the show. So we had several questions over Twitter about where to find safe havens, what, where to hide, uh, particularly if bonds, if there's a fair chance that they're likely to be lousy for, for a significant period. And I, I, I remember there was a lovely line from you, I think, in Grant's Interest Rate Observer, where you were talking about, in, I'm getting the hang of saying grants now, where, where you <laughs> said investors feel compelled to own bonds, not as income producing vehicles, but islands of safety. And you were talking about the delusion that they're intrinsically safe. And you were pointing out that they were dubbed certificates of confiscation back in 1981 and were deemed intrinsically unsafe. So if we, if we accept the hypothesis that although we don't know the future of the bond market, at least we now know they're not intrinsically safe. There are periods in which bonds can right. be a terrible investment. So this raises the question, where, where should we hide? And, and so there were several questions uh, uh, about gold. Uh, um, someone called, who has a terrific name, um, he's called Doherty Twit on, uh, on Twitter. This uh, um, a gentleman named Bob Doherty said, Grant has, so, has said that gold is not a hedge against monetary disorder, 
It's an investment in monetary disorder, which yeah. is what we have. And he says, how would Jim make the argument that, that gold could be part of the solution? And then someone called Dr. Hugh Axton, uh, who describes himself very uh, nicely as a former hedge fund manager striving to see the world as clearly as possible, says, why hasn't gold performed better in this environment with right. rampant inflation and negative real interest rates? So could you talk a little bit about why and whether gold should be a place we should hide? It's like, it's to come for me rather like a difficult child to always make excuses. <laughs> First of all, it is true that gold has disappointed its many, its many fans. Actually, not so, but those fans it has disappointed. It has not twigged on to the fact uh, that uh, the competition it faces from interest rates is a very meager competition because, uh, after all, with a 9% inflation rate, you're still losing massively on a bond that yields 3 or 4%. The rate of inflation is taking most of your money. And because the coupon or the rate of interest it pays is so low, there's no protection against the loss in price. Back in the early 80s, bond would uh, uh, down 15% in a year. And uh, that's fine because the coupon was 15%. You could absorb the loss. Now, so, okay, so, so the, the interest competition against gold, a non-interest-paying asset, is slight to meager, yet gold has retreated in the face of just the Fed's promise to raise interest rates. So it betrays, the gold market betrays a most unbecoming trust in the institution that we are meant to be hedging against. So that part of it is fabulously annoying to me. Yeah, I, I, it, it, it's, as if no, it's as if Mr. Market does not read what I take the trouble to write every two weeks. So I can't explain it. I can deplore it, but I really can't explain it. Maybe it's, you know, I can, I can, I can recite reasons why gold hasn't done well, and uh, I will. For example, the dollar is the world's uh, great reserve currency. It is um, Hercules itself in relation to the euro which has as its uh, money master or mistress, uh, Christine Lagarde, who has to this date kept the policy interest rate of the European Central Bank at one half of 1% below zero. That's in the face of a raging inflation in the continent of Europe. And if you look at Japan, another major currency the dollar competes against, the Bank of Japan has chosen to uh, uh, suppress its bond yields at just about zero and let the yen exchange rate go to just about zero seemingly. I mean, the exchange, exchange market is, is, is eviscerating the dollar-yen exchange rate. Okay, so... So you're saying it's basically uh, it's, it's three gangs that can't shoot straight, <laughs> sort of, sort of but, firing, but, but one, firing... But one at least possesses a weapon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's one reason. And uh, I, th I think also gold is up against um, its very tangibility. One of the oddities of 2021, apart from limitation of Bitcoin, was, a, was the you know, millennial obsession. It was a very brief live thing, but uh, tungsten cubes. Did you hear about this? Tung, tungsten I loaded up on them, Jim. became a thing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was thinking to myself, ha, huh, if you want to buy a monetary metal, why don't you try one that is actually money? You know? but, <laughs> yeah, weren't these but, just, they were pictures of tungsten or something? Like, I, I yeah, don't know. I, I yeah, feel like I, 140 years old when I read granted, that. Granted, it's very heavy. <laughs> <laughs> it has certain metallurgical properties. But anyway, so I, I think that the, the world is, um, for whatever reason, has turned its back on gold. So the question for the house is, 
that's the past. That is indeed the present. Is the future shine any brighter? And my case for gold is that it is the monetary asset that is not in the world of credit. Credit is the promise to pay money, right? It's the bond market. It's the loan market. So we live in a world, a financially honeycombed world of promises, financial promises, debts. And the ratio of these debts to income worldwide is an all-time high, especially so in China. And I think that before long, how long, oh Lord, I don't know, before long, the world will see in gold an island of safety from the world of credit. It's a monetary asset without a counterpart. No one owes you anything on gold. It is itself. It's itself. It's, it's, it's value in itself. And the trouble is people don't necessarily see the value yet, but I think they will now. Gold stocks are even worse than gold. Uh, never have they been, I think, I'm saying, saying never have they been cheaper in relation to the price of the metal because people are not people don't believe the central banks can really come a cropper. Now, I've seen, so old am I, I have seen central banks become completely marginalized and discredited in the 1970s to Arthur Burns and G. William Miller, and indeed before them under William McChesney Martin. Paul Volcker himself was discredited as an assistant secretary of the Treasury before he became the deity of modern central banking. So my bet on gold is that it is indeed an investment in monetary disorder, which to date is still latent and not manifest. This could be a web of rationalization that is going to get nobody anything except trouble. That's the way I think. And in, in practical terms, I, I remember reading the, 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 the part of your own investment portfolio that you manage is the part that's in gold. Can, can you give us a sense of what would be a, a sensible way to invest in gold for people sure. who yeah. believe so, that they so should. So what were your threshold question if, if you are, uh, your two threshold questions. One is, do you want to own the metal itself or the mining shares? And the second one, if the metal itself, do you want to own the exchange traded fund, which is the metal, but in paper form or the things that you can possess. So I've chosen to own Krugerrands, one ounce coins, and they're available from, uh, you know, from under Jim's bed. We, we can that, that, all, that's what, in the those show notes, those, I'll be... Those aren't, those aren't for sale, though. <laughs> I'll, I'll, be, I'll be publishing Jim's address on, in the show notes so you can go visit his Kruger and stash. What do they call that when the Supreme Court judge gets... Uh, gets uh, anyway. Yeah. Um, so, so really, that's a better bet okay. to own Kruger Well, well I, it seems to me that if, if, you, if, if you want protection against uh, bad things happening in the world of finance, especially the world of credit, then you, you want a tangible protect, protection and not something that itself is part of the problem or could be part of the problem. So mm. you want the physical thing. Okay. So what about, but mining shares offer a value proposition. They're deeply discounted, widely, not so much unliked as ignored. So there's, uh, I own something, for example, called uh, the Sprott uh, Gold Mining Trust. I guess. Anyway, John Hathaway, this guy used to be called the, uh, the Tocqueville Gold Fund, but now it's called Sprott, S-P-R-O-T-T. And he's smart. He's someone you would Yeah, you he's, would he's, a, he's a very area. good gold, gold stock manager. So that's one. This one uh, so that's, that's gold. I say, so this, you know my reasoning for it. You know some of the ways to look at playing. There are all sorts of alternatives to John's fund, all sorts of alternatives to, uh, to owning uh, individual Kruger ads. Those are, the, those are some of the ways to approach it. 
So, Jim, you, you mentioned tungsten uh, NFTs, which I'm guessing you weren't loading up on. But but there are a lot of people out there who, in terms of cryptocurrencies, have, have been saying that Bitcoin is a, a valid and worthy hedge against financial chaos and against the kind of reckless monetary policies that you've been seeing. And I, I'm guessing that you just see crypto, the crypto boom as a kind of outbreak of irrational exuberance and the madness of crowds. But could, could you talk a little bit about your perspective on, on Bitcoin as probably the most, uh, the, the, I, I hesitate to annoy loads of people, the most defensible of the cryptocurrencies? Do you give it any credence as a, as a hedge against reckless monetary policies or, or nope. why? <laughs> so so um, uh, first of all, let me give props to the, uh, the people who did see this for the thing, capital T, it has become, I'm reminded, I remind myself of Lloyd Blankfein, the uh, chairman of uh, Goldman Sachs uh, in the day. And, uh, Lloyd Blankfein was asked about gold in, say, 2011, when it was uh, like $1,900 an ounce. And he said, what do I know? He said, I was bearish at $35 an ounce. And uh, similarly with, uh, with, with, uh, with Bitcoin. So having uh, given uh, proper props to those who saw it for what it was then. So what is it? Is it money? No, it's not money. Is it uh, something you can transact with? Well, it's awfully clunky for that. Um, is it... Uh, store of value well i don't know drawdowns uh, like 80 percent i mean has anyone ever taken out a mortgage in bitcoin would elon musk when he was besotted by bitcoin would he have written uh, a tesla warranty in bitcoin one day it's worth uh, four thousand dollars the next day it's worth forty thousand dollars to to the you know to the buyer to him it's a cost four thousand for no no he hasn't done that nor has anyone taken out a mortgage in Bitcoin, I think. So I think that, and so if you're, if you're really a zealot on Bitcoin, what we're saying is the world of technological innovation will never create something better. So it's crazy. Bitcoin trades like a tech stock. It is as vulnerable to disruption as any other tech stock. I mean, who's to say it's not the palm pilot of cryptocurrencies? The, you know, the, uh, I used to work with us software program, a word processing program called Multimate. Oh, I love Multimate. Never mind that I actually lost a book chapter once on Multimate. <laughs> it just vaporized. But still, I loved it. Money is people cling to Bitcoin. What, down from 68,000 to 19,000? I said, oh, I still love it. But I'm, I think that Bitcoin is vulnerable to that. Also, Bitcoin uh, used to be the thing you, you say if you wanted to buy, uh, I don't know, uh, a container full of surface-to-air missiles. You go to Bitcoin, you go to the dark web and use Bitcoin, right? It's perfect for it. But now Bitcoin wants to become respectable. You're like you, you're like me. So uh, Bitcoin is now being regulated. Now it's, uh, it's, oh, this leverage. Ah, the snake in the garden of Eden. Credit has now entered the world of cryptocurrencies. I know this because of the serial bankruptcies of hedge funds and uh, lending platforms. So the thing that... Um, uh, that the, uh, that the uh, inventor of Bitcoin wanted to get away from was, uh, was central bank centrality and credit and credit risk, right? Nope, hasn't escaped it. There's all sorts of ways that this is not decentralized, all sorts of ways in which it is vulnerable to the, uh, uh, to the vicissitudes of the world of credit. And believe me, there ain't nothing 
more given to vicissitudes in the world of borrowing and lending. Are there other places that you're seeing a lot of opportunity at the moment in terms of Japanese stocks, which I remember reading recently in, in Grants, well, you were yeah, saying I mean, they're underfollowed yes, and conservatively yeah, yeah, capitalized. Yeah. Uh, I, think there, I think there are a lot of good things happening in Japan at the company level. You know, the, I think the guy who's running monetary policy is his obsessive focus on raising the rate of interest is doing enormous damage to the Japanese uh, credit market. But, however, at the company level, many good things are happening in in the simple business of making a profit. And that's not being widely recognized. There are financial institutions worldwide, but perhaps especially in Europe, that are being tarred with Ukrainian war, Russian Ukrainian war, and that are selling at uh, really fetching multiples. I don't want to name them because I own a lot of them. There is, I'll, I'll tell you about it, that uh, something that people might take a shine to. There's a, 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 a tiny mutual fund that is interested only in owning uh, value-laden stocks. It's called the, the Palm Valley Capital Fund. And people who found it have, were uh, very good investors, but who would not participate in the levitation, in the everything bubble. And they went off on their own, and they said, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to wait until we think, see things, stocks that are absolutely cheap, then we'll buy them. But we're not going to keep up with the Joneses. And I find I found what they what they what they did. What I, I dare say they have our grant story up on, on their website. I bet they'd be foolish not to. <laughs> I think the world of the two of them and um, Eric Cinnamon is one of them and, and uh, Jamie Wiggins. But I think the world of them, their discipline, uh, their adherence to the doctrines of margin of safety. Um, so they are going to be around. Whatever happens, and the stocks they own will do very, very well after the dust settles, and the dust will, there will be dust. <laughs> there will be dust. Well, what about China, Jim? I, I, I read a lovely line from, from Grants a while back where you talked about the West's financial love interest being China, despite, as you put it, uh, such so-called warts as autocracy, tyranny, the official persecution of minority peoples, the subjugation of formerly free Hong Kong, threats against Taiwan, and the creepy omnipresence of the Chinese Communist Party. And I was wondering whether, whether since, since prices have fallen in a lot of tech stocks, uh, among other things in China, whether you've become more enamored or whether, those, those, whether that language suggests that you're still uh, a, a China skeptic. I'm a seller at zero. Now, China is the worst. I mean, uh, and China is getting its comeuppance there as we speak. There is a, uh, a spreading nationwide uh, strike against paying one's mortgage interest owing to the failed promises of uh, sundry real estate developers. China is the most leveraged, most corrupted marketplace, not just uh, corrupted. Well, let me put it this way. If you ever see a currency with uh, one side, there's a picture of a mass killer. You don't want to own that country. <laughs> so this is a country with Mao on the currency. What are they, they're telling you something. Just don't do it. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, you know, Bob Gibson. What do you expect? You lost all your money in China? Yeah. <laughs> what are you expecting? God, I can't stand that place. 
<laughs> I'm glad I asked. Um, so, so in terms of your own investments, over the years, you, you've known so many remarkable investors. I, I know that Paul Isaacs, who I interviewed for my book, but I didn't write about, who's, who's brilliant, is an old and close friend of yours. Seth Klarman, obviously, you've been close to for many years and, and has, has written for Grant's Interest Rate Observer. Jim Chanos, the famous short seller has been a great source and friend. And I, and I think your daughter went to work for him as, a, as an analyst yes, at one yeah. point. And so I'm wondering over the years, given, given that you're sort of the insider's insider, whether you ended up investing with some of these remarkable people yourself. Yes, uh, my family has, a, for us, a fair amount of money with Paul Isaac, who has been having a very rough time. He's, he's been buying uh, uh, the aforementioned uh, you know, financial stocks that are some, some of them in Europe are selling at uh, less than two times earnings. I mean, they, everyone is afraid that, uh, well, they're afraid of the gas getting turned off. They're afraid of, uh, of uh, the inflation uh, uh, that is spreading and that uh, uh, the European Central Bank seems to be very comfortable with. So, you know, his view, my view is that these things will pass. You know, the, the underlying idea is that it value outs, value comes out in the end, is a trial while waiting for that to happen. Uh, but uh, we wait. Do you have any ad- advice for our listeners on how to handle those emotional challenges during those long periods where you're trying to be rational, but you're kind of barraged w- with emotion. I, I opened up a couple of uh, statements yesterday for hedge funds that I've invested in. And, and <laughs> one of them, I think, is down 40% for the year. And I look at it and I'm like, wow. And I'm kind of fine because I didn't, don't have any you know, serious debt or anything like that. And I, and I knew that it would be volatile and it was giving up some of the great returns. But it's, um, uh, but it's still kind well, of William, painful. I, I tell you what, uh, are you one of these people that, get, that gets tested every week for COVID? Uh, no, I, I just sit around in my study and read. Right. Well, see, um, you can open the envelope and look. <laughs> you don't have to. Yeah. So, you know, so, so, so one, one approach is to pay less attention. Now, that is exactly sticking one's head in the sand. That is literally sticking one's head in the sand. Now, that is an appropriate, uh, I think, stratagem. You're 23, I'm gathering, I'm looking at your picture. <laughs> yeah, just based on my physique and my handsomeness and my beautiful skin. Yeah, you've got it, Tim. So as one uh, ages, one must pay closer attention and watch for drawdowns, uh, as we set, uh, kind of uh, clinically uh, call losing money. Uh, what to say? I think one ought never to be fully invested, nor is that yet. Yeah. Um, uh, this uh, a lump of cash for uh, for the sake of opportunism, for the sake of, the, of, the, of what you can't see but can't even imagine, but will come your way. So opportunities come in all sorts of guises. And one of the age-old guises of opportunity is, uh, is disaster. So how to cope? I think this is where financial history comes in, just knowing that this too shall pass but knowing also that if you watch out, a lot of things do go to zero and stay there. You, have to, you, you can't, you can't, you can't, uh, um, I'm afraid some of this is coming across as most unhelpful. People who have really, really gotten stuck cannot get unstuck by following the wise words of Bernard M. Baruch to himself in the year 1930. You know, the uh, become humbler as the market goes your way. That, oh, thank you a lot. Thank you a lot. That's not now. Please, please tell me that later. You know, 
So I'm not exactly sure how to, ha- how to answer the question. I, I, I think it's like, a, you know, if, if you come down with cancer, by the way, you ever spoke? Yeah. yeah it's just, well, don't, don't, don't have done that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Let's let's talk more about Bernard Ambaruch because I've I've spent a very pleasurable portion of the last week reading this re- really lovely book of yours, um, which I'm holding up for those who are watching on video, and I'll put in the show notes, which is called Bernard Ambaruch: The Adventures of a Wall Street Legend. And as you were mentioning, he wrote this memo to himself in I think 1930. Yeah, he wrote to himself, right? And it's an amazing thing. I mean, can, can, you, can you first introduce us a little bit to who Bernard Baruch was? Yeah. And then let's talk a bit about what the lessons are that he figured out yeah. along the way. Because he was one of the world's great investors and speculators who's largely been forgotten. But I think the lessons from him are actually really profound, particularly for those of us who, who've been going through difficult yeah. times lately. Uh, his dates were 1870 to 1965. Uh, he uh, was born in the uh, post-Civil War South to a former Confederate uh, surgeon who grew up in very, very uh, straightened circumstances. He moved to New York. His family was very close. He was well-educated at New York City public schools, went to Wall Street. And by the time he was 30, he was a millionaire. Now, that was when a millionaire was something. Yeah. <laughs> And he did it in about three years, right? It was something like 1897 to 1900. Yeah. He went from nothing to a million dollars. Yeah. Some of these details are a little bit foggy. I wrote this about 40 years ago. But Brook uh, 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 began as a, uh, as a trader in public securities. But he made his big money uh, later on in what we would now call private equity. He, um, he became a principal, a rather reluctant principal, and something called the Texas Gulf Sulfur Company. So he, uh, at the top, we, you might have a better recollection of this than I do. I have, I have a footnote. I remember this footnote. At the top in 1929, he was worth, what, $30 million or something? Yeah. 40. So he, he was an old-fashioned millionaire. Gold was $20.67 an ounce. And he was worth $30 million, let us call it, of that kind of dollar. He was a fabulously wealthy guy for his age. So he was a political figure. He was a he was a speculator, and then he became respectable, and then a, a banker. But he was doing the same thing all the time. He was he had sayings that uh, that a speculator is someone who looks out into the future. Okay. Or know the future, but you can't. But you can judge likelihoods. All right. So he goes into the crash, owning a lot of securities, and contrary to the myths surrounding his reputation, he was not in cash, having expected the crash. He was rather a new era bull who did not expect it, who was perfectly willing to admit that things looked toppy uh, or overdone. But I think that the, the greatest chapter in his investing history was the recovery from that attitude towards one in 1930 that was very suspicious of what was then a very meaningful recovery in the stock market. It's the spring of 1930, the market came back, a lot of people, ah, it's over. But Brooke was not so sure. He was very defensive. And it was at that time he wrote this memo to himself. It was, uh, I forget, uh, forgive me, I've forgotten some, but it was a per- like a personal equipment. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I mean, I have it here, Jim. And I, 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 I mean, as I said to you before we talked, uh, uh, I, I said this, this, th- those two pages are worth the price of entry for the entire book. They're pretty amazing. And there's, there's one thing, I mean, it's, all, it's yeah, personal equipment and it's all his advice to himself. So, for example, 
yeah, he's talking about prudence and he says, be pliable or you won't be prudent. Be- and he puts this in italics as you, uh, this is the quote you mentioned before, become more humble as the market goes your way. And, um, and then he talks about pliability and he says, consider and reconsider the facts and your opinions, stubbornness as to opinions, cockiness must be entirely eliminated. And then he says, later on, he talks about the unforeseen and he says, always make allowances for, uh, always make allowances for chance or chance, as you would say, keep a financial and mental and physical reserve. Yes. And there's something about the humility of it, about the sense the sense of someone who's just had the crap beaten out of him yeah. and he's looking at himself and he's saying, what, what, what have I learned? What does this tell you about the need for humility, the need for prudence, the need to avoid cockiness? And yet he goes back in and then basically ends up with 25 million or so in his personal fortune, which as you say, was real money back then. Yeah. Well, it, it's a, it's quite an inspiring story. I think, uh, you know, what, one word on this, uh, a word on the word stubborn. It's, it's kind of a cliche on Wall Street that, uh, uh, that you are stubborn if wrong, but you exhibit conviction and character if you are proven right. So Seth Klarman and uh, Paul Isaac alike are examples of value investors who are quite comfortable in the skin of their own analysis. There was a C company, and the company is earning uh, $4 a share. It's priced at uh, $40. So it's 10 times those earnings, right? So it's 10 times earnings. And then the Fed uh, clears its throat and says it might tighten. The stock price is now 36. Well, it's not as good as 40, but the stone's still earning $4 a share. And now the Fed says something else, and the economy hits a little rough patch, and the price is now suffering not 36, but 28. And now it's, it's earning three and a half dollars and not four, but the ratio of price is, is much cheaper. So do you sell because is it stubborn to hold in the face of what could be a very devastating bear market? Or are you exhibiting the clarity of perception and the analytical conviction of a properly informed long-term investor by holding and buying more as the price comes down? So these, these are, these are, this is the eternal tension, right? It's the eternal question. That's why some people succeed on Wall Street and some don't. It's not as if anyone can do this. Not even the professionals can sometimes do this. It's so hard. The analysis is hard. It's hard. But that's nothing compared to controlling one's own perceptions and emotions. John, Jack Vogel and I work, I, I count him a friend, not just a Wall Street acquaintance. And he was kind enough to speak several times. Our, we have a conference once a year now. Jack spoke once. And this was about 2000. And I think it was if memory serves, which it so infrequently does. I think it was 2009, 2010, the crash, the crisis was fresh in memory. And Jack confessed that, yeah, he, f- he felt just the way everybody else did. <laughs> you know, the world was ending. Yeah, yeah, it was ending. And uh, so, but it doesn't end, does it? <laughs> Not <laughs> yet. One, one, <laughs> right. <laughs> so they say. <laughs> but um, I don't know. I, I, I like to see them go down and I like to see them I like to see them for sale at the bottom. I love that. I love to see, I love to collect values and, and bargains. So uh, that's my rooting interest. Yeah, and you, there were a couple. Of, there were a couple of important lessons that I drew from your discussion of Baruch, where you said at one point uh, you wrote the best speculators seem to buy when everybody else wants to sell, 
And so there, so he did have this ability to buy cheap. But then at the same time, you said Baruch's speculative genius was his trader's flexibility. So you talk actually about the opposite characteristic, which is saying a successful stock trader. Well, it's, 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 a, it's a battle of cliches, isn't it? One of the, uh, uh, the great uh, bon mots of yesteryear's turn of the 20th century in Wall Street was a so-and-so, some great speculator, was all nerve and no nerve. Hmm. That's, that's kind of descriptive of a certain kind of personality. Now, Steve Cohen, for example, the guy, the hedge fund guy who owns the Mets, I, I see that as kind of an all nerve and no nerve. In what um, sense? Unflappable in the face of adversity. That's, well, nerve in this case refers to uh, flightiness or jumpiness. And you could be all nerve in the sense of having, again, a kind of a tactile sense that something's wrong. And just for no evident reason, change your mind. That's all nerve. And no nerve in the sense of being impervious to the crowd, of standing aloof from the crowd and its emotions and its stampede. That's no nerve. I I remember you writing at one point about uh, the importance of intellectual flexibility. And it seems like that's one of the things that you admire most in the best investors, this ability to be to be open to what you've called seemingly heretical ideas. Yeah. Um, well, this is the people who, uh, some of the people who made money in Bitcoin were those who had no conviction all about its utility. It was, the, 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 you hear these, uh, these evangelists now, uh, some of whom had public companies who uh, say that uh, the world will never be the same. Bitcoin. It's, it, it changes everything. And the, uh, the people who perhaps make more money, I say, yeah, it's a trade. Bill Miller came, came on the podcast recently, and I, I've been interviewing Bill basically for 22 years uh, pretty, pretty consistently. And Bill is just one of the great sort of agnostics in life. And he just said, um, uh, he was talking about Buffett and Munger saying that, that um, Bitcoin's a non-productive asset like gold. And Bill's like, since when was investing about owning productive assets? He's like, well, it's think, about I making think, money. Yeah, well, all right. I thought that's it was interesting, Bill, though. That's and, Bill. I, I say that with half respect and half, um, and ha- all respect, but uh, a, a little bit of exasperation. I think that's too cynical. Yeah, no, my, investing is not about lights on the Bloomberg screen. Investing is about the allocation of capital. It's cosmic sense, or it's macro sense. Investing is about the proper allocation of funds into productive enterprise that uh, society needs to grow and prosper. All right, so when the central banks are directing investments in manipulation of the most important price in capitals, maybe interest rates, that money gets misdirected. And Bill Miller is fine in buying these, maybe, did Bill Miller ever get long electric truck manufacturers? I might have. There were lights that were probably lighting and flickering at him. He got long Bitcoin. It was a flickering light. I, I think it's more than that. I think that's way too cynical. Interesting. I, I guess what struck me is just there, there, there are different ways to climb the mountain, and it's yes. It's, oh, yes. There are all sorts of different ways to make money. I'm, but I'm saying that, uh, that yeah. to completely separate uh, earning power, yeah, um, and financial stability from money making, I think that, that leads you into the the newest fad, the hottest manager, yeah. the most speculative names, and yeah. the, the deepest remorse. 
But I think one thing I like about Bill that I think is very similar to you actually is that kind of philosophical open-mindedness, that, that ability to say, well, what is this thing? And, and I don't think I've ever met an investor who's more open-minded. <laughs> you look unconvinced. <laughs> For those who are listening, listen to the I, podcast, let it be recorded, but I, there was a pregnant silence. Let me, I, 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 don't, I don't understand Bill's approach. I do understand and comprehend and admire his success. Yeah. So, Jim, one of the, one of the things uh, as, as we begin to draw this to a close, since I don't want to try your uh, patience excessively. Uh, um, it's too late for that. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Uh, yeah, we're about an hour beyond that point. Um, in, in your preface to the Bernard Baruch book, you, you mentioned in passing that the, the most precious commodity is time. And I wondered now, as you mentioned to me before the start, you're, you're approaching your 76th, 76th birthday. When you look back and you think about how you spent your time doing, uh, you know, many books, much journalism, all of this stuff, what what gives you most satisfaction? What do you think you got right in life about getting getting the balance between your work, your family, your four kids, all of this stuff? Well, what I got right in life is the former Patricia. <clears throat> what I got life. <laughs> we got life and right. <laughs> what I got right in life is the former Patricia Kavanaugh. So uh, as to time and its uses, I, I, looking back on it, I, I mentioned at the beginning, I, I spent hours practicing Mozart, Richard Strauss on the horn, and, uh, playing arpeggios and scales and uh, etudes. And, uh, and that was an isolation in a room, practice room. And then my life has been typing in a room. And um, I guess I have chosen that because that's who I am and what I wanted to do. But looking back on it, I wish I'd gotten out more. I love what I have done. Now, the, uh, next time through, assuming we all get another shot, right? I want to be the kind of guy who not only enjoys having written, but the guy who enjoys writing. That's going to save me an awful lot of aggravation. Well, I'm so glad to hear that, Jim, because when I read your writing, and I, 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 I'm not trying to butter you up, you're a really wonderful writer. And I, so, several times this week, I would be on a call to my mother in London, for example, and I would read her something that you wrote. And the other day, I had John Gertner, who's a wonderful writer, over, and, and I read him something you'd written. And I'm just like, this, is, this guy just can really write. And so when oh, I read your, you. no, you're, you're a really wonderful writer. And when I read your stuff, there's a sense of kind of, exuberance and humor and joyfulness and panache. And I was thinking, God, does this guy enjoy writing? Because for me, it's such torture. And, and so I was kind of wondering whether, whether you reach that stage where it seems casual and easy because you've just written so much, you've done so many drafts, or whether actually there is a kind of delight for you in playing with the language. I love the language and uh, your language, I must say, man. I am currently uh, working on a book about Edmund Burke and Charles James Fox, and I am uh, immersed in the 18th century oratory, and I am, it charms me no end. I, I, I think I have uh, probably a, some shrink would say I take refuge in the past, but I love John Adams and my biographical subjects for the reason of his rhetoric. So... Um, I love the language. I hate my first drafts. Uh, second drafts are scarcely more presentable. I keep going until they appear spontaneous. So in, that, in a certain sense, it's kind of the Temkin village. But every, every accomplishment, every well-accomplished thing appears effortless, right? 
a double play in baseball or uh, an aria in the opera sung by somebody who devoted his or her lifetime in the practice room. You know, all this appears effortless. So if it appears effortless, that's good. That, that means that uh, the sweat has been worth it. But I assure you, there ain't no effortlessness in it. That's, that's heartening because I, I mean, there's a part of me, I, I spent five years working on my book and I, I saw you spent four years uh, working on your great Bernard Baruch book. And there's a part of me that's like, God, do I, how, how soon can I climb that mountain again? It's really painful. And so hearing that it's been a struggle for you is kind of heartening. Oh man, are you kidding? It's, it's, uh, you know, I, I do this also, it's part time for me. I, this, 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 my life's work is grants and fishery observer. And, uh, that's the most important thing I do professionally. But uh, a close second to the books I've worked on, I spent uh, you know, nights, weekends on the 4th of July on uh, Edmund Burke and Charles James Fox. So it is uh, at the age of, uh, let us call it 76, I find that uh, uh, it becomes uh, rather a lot. However, the simple joy of, the thing, uh, of my avocation is enough to carry me through the uh, such pleasure out of reading uh, what these greats have written, and uh, and seeing these societies at work, and uh, trying to decode them, it's a, it's such a, it's a privilege to have the have the time to that time, just as you say, or just quoting me. And time is uh, so yeah, I think uh, uh, Samuel Johnson say reputation is the one thing that no man can give to himself, and I would say that time is something else that uh, is not for sale can't buy a reputation, nor can you buy the heartbeats. So as life goes on, you become to covet those heartbeats and husband them and expend them in ways that uh, rather more carefully than you did when you were a young fellow throwing them around since they were confetti. They're not. And is there, a, when you look back on everything, on all the books, on all the 40 years worth of issues of uh, Grant's Interest Rate Observer, is there, is there some common denominator, some, some theme where you look back and you're like, that, that, that's kind of what I hope my legacy is? Like maybe, yeah. it, is there something? Well, you know, uh, I will say this. Uh, we have uh, uh, been right and we have been wrong, but we have always been literate. And um, I, I, I think we should apologize forever reverting to baseball analogies. I do love the sport. But uh, uh, one of the uh, players of the Mets, Keith Hernandez, uh, recently had the honor of his number being retired. I'm not sure if they had this in, in uh, English football or cricket, but uh, uh, nobody will ever be whatever Keith's number was. Keith Hernandez's number was 17, maybe, or I don't know. And um, in tribute to him, one of the sports writers said that uh, he never threw away an at-bat. Never just went through the motions. And I can say that every single line in Grants was the best I could write at the time. Some of them I look back on, some of them are stilted, I think. Some of them are not, I would have, I always want to rearrange something. But nothing was ever tossed up in the wall hoping it would stick. That's yeah. good. That's a that's a lovely and for me inspiring note on on which to end as a as a fellow uh, struggler on the on the writing mountain. 
to use a, a don't, don't don't you despair William and the 16th draft is going to come out just the way you want it <laughs> all right Jim thank you so much this has been an absolute delight and I I, um, I, I hope the microphone's wrong because I couldn't do this again I hope so <laughs> and I, I really admire your work greatly and and all of the wisdom and uh, you've shared over the years and the, whether right or wrong it's always been a delight to read and also to listen to you so it, this has just been a total treat for me so thank, thank you, you. Okay. all right thank you Bye. so much All right, folks, thanks so much for joining us for this conversation. If you'd like to learn more from Jim and money's not an issue, I'd highly recommend his flagship publication, which is called Grant's Interest Rate Observer. I think of it as the Rolls Royce of investment newsletters. It's a little bit pricey for most regular investors, but if I were a professional investor, I certainly wouldn't want to be without it. At the other end of the spectrum, Jim's team also publishes a free commentary on the financial markets most days of the week. It's called Almost Daily Grants. I'll include links to these and various other resources in the show notes for this episode. If you enjoy studying financial history, I'd also highly recommend some of Jim's terrific books. I personally particularly enjoyed his biography of Bernard Baruch, which is subtitled The Adventures of a Wall Street Legend. I've spent more than 30 years of my own life as a writer and editor, and I know how brutally hard it is to write well. So when I see someone like Jim, who's a profoundly gifted writer, I have huge respect for his talents, both as a thinker and as a wordsmith. He's really pretty remarkable. Meanwhile, many thanks to everyone who suggested questions over Twitter for me to ask Jim. For every episode of the podcast, I'd like to send out one autographed copy of my book, Richer, Wiser, Happier, as a way of saying thanks for all of your excellent questions. This time around, the prize winner is Bob Doherty, a listener who lives in California. So, Bob, I'll be sending you a copy of the book very shortly, I hope. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at WilliamGreen72, and please do let me know how you're enjoying the podcast. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. I'll be back very soon with some great guests. My Next guest is Tom Russo, a terrific global investor who's beaten the market by a mile over the last 40 years or so. After that, I'll be joined by the Nobel Prize-winning economist Robert Schiller, who's also the author of a blockbuster bestseller called Irrational Exuberance. Until then, take care. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.